our Father, your faithfulness is so incredible to us. How it is that the perfect God, creator of the universe, can, can love and, and care and, and have mercy on we who are so often in violation of your word and of what we know to be true in our own hearts, either in our attitudes, our words, our deeds, uh, our whatever might be a part of our lives during the day. And, and yet, Lord, you keep picking us up and dusting us off and, and leading us on the way that you've set before us. And this is just so encouraging to us. And yet, Lord, we know that we are responsible to be obedient people and that uh, we further your kingdom as we walk in obedience. And that is our great desire. And Father, you are the one who instructs us through your word. You've given us this wonderful book called the Bible, which we can put our absolute total faith in. And we trust you to teach us this morning as we again look a little further uh, into your word today. And we ask that as the word is taught in every class this morning, that you will anoint and empower, that you will bless in the service, which is uh, concurrent. And we ask, Lord, that above everything else, that your great name will be exalted. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. Let's read from Exodus 32, beginning at verse 1 through verse 6. And now when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people assembled about Aaron and said to him, Come, make us a God who will go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we do not, do not know what has become of him. And Aaron said to them, Tear off the ring, gold rings which are in your, the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. Then all the people tore off the gold rings which were in their ears and brought them to Moses. And he took this from their hands and fashioned it with a graving tool and made it into a molten calf. And they said, This is your God, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. Now when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. So the next day they rose up early and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat, drink, and rose up to play. We have to remember they have spent a year traveling out of the land of Egypt, coming to this place. And there in the Sinai Desert... In this hostile environment, as they looked around them, barren mountains in all directions, no forests, no nice little rivers you know, trickling through the countryside. Here, here they were in a land where the sun shines always and uh, where it's hot and dry. These people were ex-slaves. They had not known freedom in Egypt. And, and they've only known freedom, freedom for a year now. And it's freedom in flight. And they have stood before this mountain, this, this mountain called Mount Sinai, Mount Horeb. And, and they've watched it quake and smoke and thunder and lightning. And they've heard God speak through Moses. And yet, when their leader vanishes, when he's gone into that smoky cauldron at the top of the mountain and does not come back down for six weeks, their allegiance to Yahweh quickly diminishes. In fact, they, sw they, they forget the fact that just 
less than six weeks before, they had sworn to obey the words that Moses brought down from God on the mountain. Why did God keep Moses up in the mountain so long? Was Moses a slow learner? <laughs> was, was Moses having a hard time copying it down? I mean, Moses wasn't copying it down. Was coming into Moses' ears and into his eyes and into his head. And it was God who was doing the writing, at least as far as the Decalogue was concerned. So why did God keep Moses up there so long? Well, certainly part of it has got to be that he's changing the character of this man Moses. You can't be six weeks in the presence of the living God and be the same person. You know, there just isn't any way. And, and God was molding this man up there on the mountain. But there was another factor in here. God was keeping him up there on the mountain for a long time on purpose. <laughs> so that Israel down there in the um, valley below w would be tried. You know, the, the scripture tells us that uh, if our faith isn't tried, it isn't going to come out as pure gold. You, know? you, you can't get gold out of an ore without heating it. I mean, you can beat it to death if you want to. You can roll it, you can crush it, you can wash it. You're still going to have alloys in the gold. Gold, natural gold out there is naturally alloyed. I mean, it has alloys of silver and copper and, and other metals which, will, which ally with it out there. And you've got to melt it down in order to separate the pure gold from the silver, the copper, or whatever other metal is, is alloyed with it. And, and so our faith is only purified, our faith is only made at what God wants it to be as it is tried. <laughs> it's got to be put in the cauldron. And Israel hasn't had much of that yet. Oh, they're going to have a lot more of it. But they haven't had much of it yet. Uh, not really. Uh, they've moaned and groaned and complained about relatively minor things up to this time. But uh, this is a real test that they're facing. God knew that they would not be able to continue on through the Sinai and come to the borders of Canaan and move into that land to conquer the Canaanite people. Now, the Canaanite people were an advanced culture. They lived in walled cities. They were people who had iron weapons, which, when you think about it, I mean, we're talking about a period when much of the world, this part of the world, is still in the transition from the Bronze Age to the Iron Age. I mean, many of the countries, even of the Near East at that time, were still bronze-using peoples. I mean, their tools and weapons were primarily made of bronze. And uh, iron use had already been introduced, but it hadn't spread throughout this part of the world. But the Canaanites had it. And for Israel to, to move in there and to try to take over this land from these people, there wasn't any way until they in their hearts had come to the place where they absolutely believed God and trusted in his word and trusted in his ordained leaders, Moses and then Joshua, and would follow them no matter what to do the will of God. And so this is, the, this is one of the applications of the cauldron, of the fire, to prepare Israel for what was before them. I mean, we have to understand, and I'm sure most of us do, that um, God just doesn't go before us and deal with every problem so that when we walk on the scene, it's all roses and flowers. You may have noticed that. Um, God expects us to deal with these problems in His strength. And we can't do it if we haven't learned to trust Him and learn to believe Him and learn to walk faithfully with him, and, and to learn that 
In it all, he's a God of mercy above all else. I think it's really of utmost importance for us here to note that although Israel absolutely miserably fails this test, did God know that? Of course God knew that. He knows all things. But notice that God does not reject Israel. As soon as that molten calf, as they started bowing to that molten calf, I mean, he could have rained hailstones the size of, of bowling balls out of heaven and wiped out the whole crew. You know, and they, they would have all melted and nobody would have known why these guys are all dead, you know, lying out here in the uh, Sinai desert. But God's goal was to teach them through their failure. Teach them through their failure. And then to give them more opportunities to use the faith that will come out of this. If God carries us through a difficult time and raises us to a little higher level of faith and commitment, do you know what's going to happen? <laughs> that level is going to be tested. Because God doesn't want us to plateau. God is not a God of plateauing. You ever wonder what you're going to do in heaven? You know, the, the traditional worldly view is you sit up there and play on the harp. You know, that's pretty dull if you think about it. I mean, uh, the harps are wonderful. I love a harp. But, you know, an eternity of everybody playing on a harp sitting in a cloud sounds a little bit, you know, like it could get on your nerves after a while. <laughs> that's not what's going to happen. God is so infinitely great that there is not enough time in forever which is kind of a silly thing, thing to say, I suppose. But there is no way you'll ever exhaust God. And, and so we will become more and more acquainted with God, who He is, and, and all the things which He does and knows throughout all eternity. And so it's kind of like, <laughs> this is going to be who we are through eternity, constantly rising to higher levels of understanding of God and, and, and coming to know Him and become one with him. But he wants us to start here. And it's kind of like, you know, here you don't know the Lord and, and suddenly you're kicked up to this plane, you know the Lord now. God doesn't want us to walk in this, this plane of, of just knowing the Lord. It's kind of like the person who's been saved for 30 years and the only testimony he has is to get up and say, I'm so glad that 30 years ago God saved me. You know, I'm glad too. But there ought to be something higher that God has done. Uh, something more that God has done in our lives that we can testify to uh, every year as our life, lives go by. He, he's pushing us up, and this is his goal, to put us to, us to a higher plane of understanding who he is. I mean, it does almost get to the point in your walk with him where, you know, we, we sing the little song, the little uh, chorus, this world is not my home, I'm just a passing through the treasures, my treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. That sounds almost pie in the sky, but in reality, the longer you walk with the Lord, the more that seems to be the way it is. The more you have a hard time comprehending the world and the way the world thinks because it seems so dumb. <laughs> because it really is. And it's not that we're so smart, it's just that we've come to know the one who, who has all the wisdom. And, and it really becomes difficult for us to, to keep ourselves into the system here and to be concerned about the politics and be concerned about the things because it seems so, so foolish and, and, and so leading to nowhere. You know? But God wants us to be light and salt. And, and so we have to keep working on, as we walk with him, uh, reapplying that to reality. 
the reality of our everyday, our everyday lives and, and still being able to relate to those around us and, and to really bring them to an understanding of Christ. We have a merciful God. I mean, how many times in, in your knowledge of, of the history of Israel could God have just said, whoosh, I'm starting over. Now he's going to say that in a few minutes here <laughs> relative to Moses, but he doesn't mean it in the sense that you might first take it as meaning. He isn't really intending to wipe out Israel. What he's doing is testing Moses. <laughs> God's really into tests. And they're generally not Scantron. <laughs> no, they're not multiple choice <laughs> tests. Jeremiah wrote a verse that we know very, very well and we often sing it. Jeremiah said, The Lord's loving kindnesses never cease. His compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. I think we can sing that song to the point it almost becomes trite and we fail to, to, to realize great is his faithfulness. <laughs> the fact that we can get up each day and go ahead in our lives is, is an act of God's mercy. Because even as God's children, you know, I, I can't you know, speak for everyone in this room, but I kind of think what human nature is not terribly different from mine. And, and, and that is we fail. You know, we probably daily fail God. And yet he doesn't just zap us and say, well, so much for you, you know, you're toast, I'm moving on to someone else, you know. Because he'd have to toast everybody. Because there is none righteous. No, not one, the scripture says. But God is faithful. And if we fail God in a certain area, if, if we fail to live our lives in a particular area or at a particular time the way we know we ought to live it, if we make a gigantic mess of things, ever had that happen to you? He doesn't reject us either, just as he doesn't reject Israel here in the Sinai desert. He seeks to teach us through our failures to move us to a higher level of faith and commitment. Because it is as our faith and commitment in Him grow that we are truly the light and salt of this world. The newborn babe in Christ, although he may go out and give a glowing testimony of being saved, is not really very salty or very much of a bright light yet. Because our testimony only has impact as our life supports our words. You know, we've heard it so often. It's not our talk, it's our walk. And, and how many have been brought into the kingdom by the reality of the faith they saw. That's why God is so concerned about the fact that the brethren love one another and that there be unity in the church because that's what makes the light glow brightly in, in this world in which we live. One of the things we've got to come to realize, and, and this doesn't come overnight, and it can end up being questioned after we've known the Lord for 50 years, and, and that is to realize that God is totally trustworthy. It sounds almost trite, but it's not, because you may have come to a place in your life when you just wondered if God really cared, or if God really is there, if God really knows the problems you're going through, or the difficulties you're facing, or you know people who've come to that place, and they've been Christians for a long time. Is God totally trustworthy? His desire is that we trust Him completely in everything. 
That's what he wants us to do. He wants us to rest. We all hear the verse and, and quote the verse which says, be anxious for nothing. And yet we walk through this life worrying about everything. You know? and, and there's got to be a place where we begin to come to understand what it means to be anxious for nothing. And that only comes as we know how to trust God. And we know how to trust Him for today and for tomorrow and for the next year and for the years ahead. We know how to trust Him for our children, our grandchildren, our friends, our neighbors. We know how to believe Him and, and just to put in His hands all these things that are of concern to us. And, and to realize that when we put it in His hands, that doesn't mean we just forget about it and don't care anymore. We continue to be intercessors. But it doesn't do any good to worry about it. To wring our hands about it, you know. Oh God, don't you know this person is getting close to death and they don't know you yet. He knows that very well. And, and his desire to save them is far greater than yours to see them saved. That's what he wants us to do is come to that place of complete trust and complete faith. To rest in his love and to rest in his faithfulness. And rest is a word that uh, many of us don't understand too well. Not because we didn't maybe sleep last night, but really just putting ourselves in his hands and, and letting him take care of us. Which again doesn't mean we just give up and sit around like a potato, you know, and do nothing. His passion for our faith is reflected very powerfully in a passage that, again, we know well, but I think it uh, is worth looking at in the 20th chapter of the book of John. The 20th chapter of the book of John reveals, in my opinion, God's great compassion that we be a people who believe. Verse 24. But Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus, which means the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. And the other disciples therefore were saying to him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the imprint of the nails, and put my finger into the place of the nails, and put my hand into his side, I'm not going to believe that. And after eight days, again his disciples were inside, and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors having been shut, and stood in their midst, and said, Shalom, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, no, he doesn't greet, you know, does he go around greeting everybody, shaking their hands, hugging them and everything else? No, he goes straight to Thomas. And how does he know what Thomas has done? Did he run, him run, out, run out and try to find Jesus someplace and tell on him? No. I mean, Jesus is God. I mean, what can we expect? Uh, he said to Thomas, reach here your finger and see my hands. Reach here your hand and put it into my side and be not unbelieving, but believing. Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they who do not see me, yet believe. To me, that's one of the most powerful encounters between Jesus Christ and another person that occurred on this planet. Because here Jesus is demonstrating his tremendous compassion for this man, Thomas. I mean, we glibly talk about doubting Thomas. But Thomas had walked with Jesus. He had walked with the other 11 disciples, or 10 at this point. 
and he doubts their words. I mean, as if collectively they've had mass hallucination. And so he says, I, I'm not going to believe unless I actually put my finger into that nail print. So does Jesus walk into the midst and say, Thomas, stay on the other side of the room there and believe me or you're dead? No. He says, Thomas, come here. Come here. You need to feel? Feel. Put your finger right there. Put your hand right here. Do it, Thomas. I mean, is that compassion or what is that, you know? Here's the God of the universe who's walked with Thomas for three years, who's tried to teach him who he was, and, and yet at this moment he says, I don't believe. And Jesus could have said, hey, the other ten believed, and just because you weren't there, I mean, look, Thomas, <laughs> if, you couldn't hang, if you can't catch it in three years, you're not going to catch it now. No, he says, Thomas, come here. Put your finger here and believe. And of course, Thomas's response is so wonderful, my Lord and my God. And then Jesus talks about us. He says, you believe because you have seen. Blessed are those who believe who have never seen. We've never seen the nail prints in Jesus' hands. We've never seen this lance wound in his side. And yet we believe we're blessed, he says. Our faith in his words, the word of God, our faith is based on fact. A lot of attacks <clears throat> that are made on the Christian church are based on the fact that we just believe a bunch of le legends. You know, that, that we just accept a bunch of, of ideas that have come down by oral tradition and aren't based in any kind of reality of it all, at all. But as you probably have heard on many occasions, no one has yet, and I don't think anyone ever will be able to, disprove one word of this book. No one by archaeological information or any other source has been able to refute any scriptural statement. The Word of God is fact. And our faith is based on fact, not fancy. Not just hope, but the facts which are given to us here. Proven in the Bible that God loves His people perfectly. Now, now, you and I live in a world where we don't love one another perfectly. We can, quote, fall out of love. I don't really believe that, but I mean, we can cease to love persons. It's our choice. And it may be something they've done to aggravate that, but we can come to the place where we don't really love somebody anymore. But God doesn't. God's love is perfect. And, and he continues to love. He cannot lie, and he's almighty. So you have a God who loves you perfectly, tells you nothing but the truth, and is almighty to do anything he says he can do, I mean, we have absolutely no reason not to put our total faith in him. And it's been so rep repeated through Scripture, from what he did for Adam and Eve in the garden all the way to what he does in bringing down the new Jerusalem from heaven to the new, to the new earth. It's been so proven that we have, we have no excuse if we do not believe Paul makes a statement which I, I remember as a kid was such a profound, th well, not a kid, a, a teenager, was such a profound uh, statement to me, and that was in 2 Timothy 1.12, a verse probably many of you, and, and probably Awana people, is this one that the kids memorize? Probably is, I, I would suspect. Paul says in 2 Timothy 1.12, For this reason I also suffered these things, but I am not ashamed, 
For I know whom I have believed and am convinced that he's able to guard what I've entrusted to him against that day or until that day. I mean, as you think about this verse here, why was Paul willing to put up with what he did? You know, in Corinthians, he talks about being a day and a half in the deep and beaten five times to nearly death and stoned and, and probably actually stoned to death at one point. And, and God revived him, and that's probably when he went to the you know, third heaven. And all the things that happened to Paul, why did he suffer those things? He suffered them, he says, because I know the one I believe in. I know him. He doesn't mean he knows about him. <laughs> he means I know his character. And I know who he is. And I know, I believe what he says. I have, the one I have believed. And I'm convinced he's able to guard. I mean, I've given up all this stuff for him. I've given up everything this life could have offered to me. I was a Hebrew of the Hebrews, a Pharisee of the Pharisees. I mean, I could have been and was right up there near the top or at the top had the acclaim of all my people. I gave it all up, he says, I counted but dung that I might know Christ. And the reason he's able to do that is he knows that God is faithful to whom he's entrusted all this, that he'll keep it to that day, that when he passes into God's presence, God will say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter now into the joy of your Lord. The Israelites hadn't yet come to know God in that sense. They had not learned to trust God's Word. They wanted a visible representative or a visible representation of God so that they could focus their trust in it. You know, it's one thing to have a touchstone of faith, which is what the bronze serpent would be later on. They, they would look at it and they would live. It was just a touchstone of faith. But it's another thing to actually have something in your midst which you can call God, which is what they're asking for here. They want a representation that they can look at and say, now that is our God. Of course, the God is in it, but anyway, that's our God. I mean, everybody else had this. They came out of Egypt where there are statues by the scores of the many different gods. And all the other people had gods that they you know, put up on poles and had in temples and carved in mountainsides. So why shouldn't they? You know, many, many, many centuries later, one of the reasons that the Christian church was persecuted in the Roman Empire was that the Christians did not have a physical representation of their God. And therefore they were called atheists because the Romans could not comprehend how someone could say they worshipped an invisible God. To them, it was you were just pulling their leg. You know, you're just saying you worship an invisible God just so you don't have to worship the real gods. And so this, this is a really, really difficult concept for many. We believe in a God we've never seen. You and I have never seen God. God's never been seen by any man in the sense of, of, his, uh, of his total glory and power. We have seen Christ. Some people have seen Christ incarnate, but that was the power of God veiled in human flesh. But to look upon God unveiled is not possible for the human. It, I mean, it would be instant incineration. Now, what about Aaron? Aaron's Moses' brother. They say, as for this Moses, 
This guy who led us out of Egypt, Aaron should have thought, hey, you're talking about my brother here. <laughs> what do you mean this Moses, the guy? <laughs> I mean, he's my brother. I dearly love him. <laughs> he doesn't say that. Now, we, we have to personally, I think, cut Aaron a little slack here. Aaron had not stood at the base of Sinai and heard God's voice from the burning bush as Moses had. Aaron would later be become Moses' spokesman, but it was, it was Moses who heard from God and then told Aaron what to say. Now, that doesn't mean Aaron is, has excuse for what he does, but we have to understand that Aaron had not had the face-to-face -face encounters with God that his brother had had, and so he was more easily intimidated. I mean, there was no way those Israelites could have convinced Moses to make them a golden calf. I mean, Moses would have climbed up, chewed him up one side and chewed him back down the other side. But Aaron is intimidated. He's intimidated into yielding to the desires of these rabble-rousers. Now, again, we have to, I think, look at Israel in, in a practical sense. I, I don't think all two million of them got up one day and said, this Moses is gone, we want, our, we want a visible God. You know? There were a few who became the instigators of all of this. And then, of course, they encouraged the mob. And there probably were members of, the, of Israel who in the background were saying, I don't think this is right. You know? I mean, we did make a promise to God. Let's, let's give Moses a little more time. But, but they didn't win the day. Now, some commentators think that uh, Aaron was trying to put the people off here when he asked for the gold earrings. Some think that uh, possibly Mo, uh, Aaron, uh, through Aaron's mind, was running the idea that if he asked for something very, very personal from them, something that, that had to do with their daily appearance, and, and he asked for that to be taken from everybody so that he could use this to, uh, to make some kind of a god that they'd stop and think, well, wait a minute, uh, this, is, you know, this has been an heirloom for a whole year now. Uh, <laughs> ever since I was given it by my Egyptian neighbors or whatever. Or, you know, I really like my earrings. They make me look beautiful or whatever else. That, that maybe they would uh, decide, well, well, just hang on, Aaron. We'll, we'll give Moses a little more time. Well, if that's what his thinking was, they called his bluff on it right away. <laughs> they went right out and started tearing all the earrings off to, to bring it to Moses. I mean, they could hardly get him fast enough, it seems like, as you read the passage there, to get him back to Moses. And then to avoid appearing as a fool... He had to do something with the gold. Now, in my opinion, the, the classic evangelical commentary on the Old Testament is uh, by two German writers, Kyle and Delich. Uh, they, they lived last century, but they, they do more detailed study of this than most of the modern commentaries. Most of the modern commentaries are really very frustrating because they just kind of fly over a lot of this stuff, about which you know, we, we have legitimate questions. But Kylan Delich cut Aaron no slack here at all. Uh, concerning the second verse there of the passage, they say, Aaron also succumbed to the temptation along with the people. Instead of courageously de and decidedly opposing their proposal and raising the despondency of the people into the strength of living faith by pointing them to the great deeds through which Yahweh had proved himself already. I mean, how many days do you see the Red Sea parted? 
you know, whoosh, big walls and you go through. And then God drowns the whole Egyptian army. And, and then a nation that knows nothing about warfare defeats a warlike nation there in the wilderness simply because Moses' hands are up in the air, you know, like this all day long. I, I mean, you know, it's just not the normal routine of things. And yet, um, does he do that? He hoped, they go on to say, he hoped to be able to divert them from their design by means of human craftiness. Well, whether that's exactly accurate or not, God only knows. But again, as I mentioned to you last week, we have to remember here that Aaron is not wrestling with flesh and blood. I mean, even though that verse is in the New Testament, it's applicable to all history. No one, from Adam and Eve in the garden to the very last human being to draw breath on this planet, wrestles with flesh and blood in the spiritual realm, but wrestles with principalities and powers, the evil minions of this world, which are out all the time trying to tear down God's church. One thing you need to note, Satan never gets tired, and neither do his demons. And he continues at it, and I'm absolutely certain that Satan was right there with Aaron. Where else would he be on this planet, you know? All the other people are out bowing down to gods everywhere. Why wouldn't he be right there? That's where he would be. And he was whispering in Aaron's ear the whole time, make a golden calf, make a golden calf, you know. How would otherwise he get this idea to make a golden calf? He'd seen golden calves before and bronze calves. I mean, we, we have examples of them that come from ancient Egypt from this time period. So what he does is he takes all these earrings, tens of thousands of them probably, and he melts them down to use the gold to mold a, uh, a, an image of a calf. And then the scripture says he took a graving tool, and, and with that graving tool, he uh, finished it to make it look as much like a calf as possible. You know, I don't know how much of a sculptor Aaron was. But anyway, they, they saw this thing as a golden calf. Now, some argue as to whether it was solid gold or not, and, and maybe this is kind of irrelevant here, but I don't think so exactly. Um, are, are we talking about a wooden image that was plated with gold? That would have been a little easier to do, probably, because somebody could have carved an image of a calf who happened to have some pretty good whittling skills, if you like, uh, pretty quickly. Uh, it'd be a little more difficult to manufacture a mold uh, real quick, I would think. Actually, whether it's uh, made out of gold and plated, I mean made out of uh, wood and plated, or made out of solid gold, either is possible here. In fact, uh, there are some further events in this passage which tend to support both positions, actually. You notice, will notice a little bit later on, that we're told when Moses comes down, I mean Moses is ticked. And Moses takes this image, and the scripture says he burns it, crushes it, powders it, throws it in the water, and makes him drink it. Now, I don't know what you know about gold, but solid gold has a specific gravity of 19. That means it's 19 times more dense than water of the same volume. It doesn't float. That's why gold panning was so successful, you know. And, and how do you burn a gold statue and then crush it? I mean, if you get it hot enough, it just melts, runs off in liquid gold. So this, this could be seen, therefore, as a wooden image that's plated with gold, which he burned and crushed, and they had to eat all this charcoal. I suppose it suppose might even be good for you. I don't know. 
But then, on the other hand, Aaron later, when Moses says, Brother, what have you done? He says, uh, well, um, these people gave me all these earrings and I dumped them in the fire and out came this calf. <laughs> I mean, he must... <laughs> talking about grasping. You know, as, as a kid in, in, in school, did you ever tell your teacher something that wasn't quite true, hoped the teacher would believe it so you wouldn't be in trouble? Was it ever that dumb? <laughs> I don't know. And of course, obviously, if, if he was saying that, it, that implies that we're talking about a molten calf. I mean, that the whole thing was made out of solid gold. Because if you put a wooden calf in the fire, I mean, probably won't uh, last long. And so it, it, it seems possible that either, either was true here. My own opinion is that we're talking about a solid gold calf here. A solid gold calf, life-size. I mean, this was no little, tiny little mantle thing. This is a big calf that has been made here. Now the question that can be asked is, why a calf? <laughs> why not a cat or a crocodile or, you know, whatever? Uh, there are a lot of other animals. Why a calf? I don't, I don't think a certain answer can be given here without, you know, any possible of question, possibility of question here, but I think there's some pretty plausible explanations here. First of all, both the cow and the bull were worshipped in Egypt. Hathor was, was the goddess often associated with the Nile. She was a, a kind of a benign mother figure type goddess and she was sometimes represented in human form but she was almost always represented in cow form. And then there was Apis. Apis was the bull god of Egypt. And we have numerous instances where these bulls have survived into the modern century that come from ancient Egypt, and they have them in the, in the museums over there. Apis was a major um, item of worship in Egypt. There, there were sacred herds of bulls that lived in Egypt. They have men, may have been the origin of the holy cow, I, I don't know. But the bull has almost always been a representative of strength and of fertility. How many bulls do you need in a herd of cows? Yeah, just one. <laughs> and so both, both were worshipped. And the bull-calf image is very, very common from Egypt. And certainly Aaron and all the, Egyptian, all the Israelites had seen that on numerous occasions. So, I mean, they were acquainted with it, first of all was not a new image. I mean, if he had come out with, with uh, a statue and it was, um, you know, a giant horny toed lizard, you know, they'd have said, what's this? You know, is this our slimy god? You know, probably not. But it also could be noted that the bull was a common image of deities from many nations. Baal, the great god that was worshipped by the Canaanites and which was such a temptation to Israel was so often represented as a bull, you know, fertility. Um, later on, uh, the, the bull will actually be often sacrificed and uh, in the worship of um, Sibylle, the mother earth goddess in um, Asia Minor, uh, they actually created a, a little place called the Torabulium where the person who is becoming an initiate to this religion uh, is put in a pit and a bull is slain over the head and they, they are baptized in bull, bull blood, you know. And, and so this is a very, very common practice and image related to many of the ancient religions. 
And so I, I think what we're having here is an image created which is commonly understood by everybody in the country, uh, all the Israelites, and is generic enough that it, uh, you know, anything can be applied to it or anything can be extrapolated from it. Because what's really happening here and, and what happens later when Jeroboam creates a calf at, at Dan and a calf at Bethel so that the Israelites won't go down and worship in Jerusalem and thus be seduced to, to rejoin Israel with Judah, uh, there's no claim that this calf is a different god. Aaron does not say, get ready now, we're going to have a feast to Apis here, or Hathor, or to Baal. He says, we're going to have a feast to Yahweh. This bull is to represent Yahweh. And that was Jeroboam's idea. They put up a golden calf at Dan and a golden calf, calf down at Bethel so that Israel would have a nearby shrine to go to to worship whom? Yahweh. Yeah, Yahweh. So what we have here, if we read in, in verse 4, the people say, after Aaron makes this image, the people say, this is Elohim, O Israel. I mean, that's the Hebrew word here, Elohim. O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. And when Aram saw this, he, he builds a, an altar and he calls for a feast to Yahweh. We're not looking at occultism here. We're looking at heresy. And I'm not standing up here to say to you that heresy is better than occultism, but there is a big difference. Occultism is to go off and, and, and worship some image that represents the demonic regions of hell. Heresy is to take the truth and distort it. I mean, one, uh, both ultimately lead to the same ultimate destruction, but, but the one is more subtle than the other. I mean, if they had said, oh, we're going to worship this bull, and this bull represents some other god we never heard of before, or Apis back in Egypt, a lot of the Israelites could say, oh, no way, you know, get involved in this. But to say, this is Yahweh, they subtly suck everybody in to this heresy. There's a whole lot that can be said about heresy, and I don't have time to say it today, but heresy is something that is afoot a, a in the world today, has always been afoot, and, and it's attacking our churches in this country to a very large measure. And it's not all just the heresy that we know so clearly because it has a title like Mormonism or something, but there are many others that are floating around, like the health and wealth gospel. Uh, others like that, which, which do not teach what the Scripture really says. It's human rationalism, trying to take the truth and, and distort it over here to make it acceptable and to make it reasonable. It just isn't biblical, and that's the big problem. Well, next week we'll pick up this point and um, see what happens when Moses comes down from the mountain.